Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the SAMOPS Specialty Podcast Series. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Today, we are very fortunate to have Major General Volpe, retired U.S. Army, with us. So to start off, General Volpe, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, where you went to medical school, specialty you did, and then if possible, I know you had a very extensive career in the military, but an overview of what you did and where you went when you were in the Army. Sure. First off, uh, thanks for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure to work with a lot of our young military medical officers, osteopathic physicians, and doctors that are going to be serving their country in our Army, Navy, and Air Force medical departments. So I'm from New York originally. I went to the University of Notre Dame for undergrad and then decided to go to the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine, where I graduated in 1983. I uh, entered the HPSP program while I was there because I needed money for medical school and I uh, didn't know much about the military at that time. And then when I graduated NICOM, I went and did my residency in a military residency out at Tripler Army Medical Center in family medicine. I, I became a family medicine physician, got board certified in 1986, and then started serving various assignments throughout my 30-year career in the Army. I started out extremely clinical early on, and I was very much into teaching at that time in academic settings. And so I got my initial assignments really to do at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to do in their residency program as faculty. And I became the clinic chief in the family medicine residency program. I obviously had my own panel of patients and taught family medicine residents that were in the Army I did that for a few years and started getting involved operationally teaching medical procedures and operational health care and field health care to medics and PAs in different units in the Army. And I was uh, coaxed into supporting special operations units, and then I got heavily involved in special operations units. So very early in my career, I went from the academic and clinical arena into the operational setting, supporting units on deployments. I supported JSOC units, which are special mission units from the Joint Services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and supported everything from SEAL teams to Delta to Special Forces to Rangers to Special Tactics Squadrons in the Air Force on missions working with uh, PJs and corpsmen and medics and Special Operations medical personnel. Pretty much deployed multiple short operational missions in just about every continent. Many were classified. Some are still classified. Uh, some, uh, some are unclassified at this time. And I thoroughly enjoyed that and loved it, and I loved serving. And that's when I decided to make it a career because my obligation had been served and it was up and decided to uh, make it a career. I then went on into executive medicine. I commanded at several levels, staff officer at several levels, went into executive medicine, and I spent about eight years as a 06 colonel in the Army and about eight years as a flag officer uh, between brigadier general and major general and pretty much served at that executive, strategic executive level my last half of my career. 
really 16 years uh, as a colonel and flag officer. And that's pretty much my career in summary. I'm single. I've always been single. I never had really had to worry or have concerns about a family or anything. Although single people have their own concerns <laughs> and, and getting things managed, especially when you deploy a lot and you're away from your home and car and everything else and there's nobody to, you know, go to banks and do things and, and help you out. So you got to do all that stuff yourself, pretty much. Uh, so, so this is a unique, unique setting for single people, as well as the challenges of being a military family. Right, definitely. That's very interesting. So, 30 years is a very long time. Thank you for your service for that long. When you originally went in, did you expect to stay in for that long, or what kind of shaped your experiences to want to make a full career out of it? That's a great question, and I get that question frequently. Um, no, I did not expect to make it a career. I, I needed money for medical school. I heard about the scholarship program. I actually were accepted Army, Navy, and Air Force uh, HPSP, and I decided to take the Army HPSP. The reason really was I'm, you know, I wasn't into flying, and I wasn't into going out on, on naval vessels and stuff. And so I decided to just join the Army at that time. Most of my family, my mother, my father and uncles and all that were in the Navy and Marine Corps. So I, that was my only exposure to the military. Once I got in and I started serving, not typically, not during my residency, but after my residency and I started getting out with soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, their families, with units, I really started to come around and understand the military a lot better, grew a great respect for service members, the men and women who serve in our military, and got a much greater appreciation how fortunate we are to be Americans and all those that came before us that served. And anyone walking around to a veteran cemetery and see, see all those graves laid out there will have a feeling that, that uh, we've, we've been uh, benefited by their service and their sacrifice. And I saw that in the service members that I supported, especially operational units and going out with special operations forces, and their dedication and selflessness and everything. And I decided that this is where I wanted to be. This is how I wanted to practice medicine. This is where I thought I could serve as a physician the best way and spend a career because I believe the men and women of the armed forces deserve the best medical care our nation can offer. And having lost service members in my hands on deployments in some of the dangerous wartime settings and footings and special operations missions, I got very emotionally attached to the military. Actually, it was a joke amongst my friends that, well, Volpe may not be married and, and have a, a wife and a family, but he's married to the Army and the military. <laughs> And everybody is in his family, and that, that's how I felt. And uh, when I retired, the comment I made that sort of summed it up was, there's nothing like spending a career doing honorable work, which is being a physician serving in the military, with honorable people, all the men and women who serve in our military. Yeah, definitely. That's so special, and I feel like our troops really do deserve great medical care because they're away from their families. So for their families back home and for them while they're doing their job serving our country, it's just so important. So operational medicine, I think, is really interesting. Did you intend to spend a lot of your career doing operational medicine, or how did you get into that? So, you know, I was always very physically active. 
I did three sports in high school. I played some sports in college. I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, but I loved working out and being active and adventure things and hiking and rock climbing and, you know, mountaineering and a lot of things like that. So I was an outdoors person, very much loved sports and activities, participating, uh, more participating than watching. (laughs) And so what I found after I got in the military, it got me back to that because I had lost that and sacrificed a lot of that while I was in undergrad and then grad school and then medical school. Because I work, you know, you you all know know how hard it is and how much work you have to devote time to, and it doesn't give you a lot of time for other activities. You have to, you know, it's part of the sacrifice that you make to be the best physician you could be and, and get your career started. So I was in that same boat. And when I got in the military, started practicing, and I, I enjoyed the physical challenges. I enjoyed going to the field. I really enjoyed you know, I went to jump school, air assault school, a whole bunch of things. I supported rangers and special forces. And You know, when you go, you got to be in good physical shape because you can't become a liability to them. they got a mission to do. They don't need their, you know, their doc and medical personnel holding them back, or, or they have to be worried about their medical personnel. I'm there to support them. They're not there to support me, although they did do a lot of support for, for me. But, you know, that's sort of how, how I ended up going into operational stuff. Now, I got to tell you, I had mentors. This is the importance of mentorship and coaches, uh, career coaches and stuff. People that took me under their wing that were senior to me, that were physicians in military medicine that got me interested and into these things to get exposed. And then also were the ones that told me, you're really good at this, you're not so good at this, you know, you need to develop yourself here as a leader. You need to get exposed here to get those experiences behind you. You ought to go down this pathway. You should consider this. And all of those things that are important for mentors and coaches to do. And uh, and they're the ones that also help shape not only my leadership style, but your ethics and character as a leader at the same time. And it sort of fit very well because as a physician, you know, you spend a career caring about people. And that's what leaders do, too. They care about people in a different way than being a physician but uh, and practicing medicine. But as a, from a leadership standpoint, it's about getting the mission done to the best of ability, building a team, and taking care of your people. And they will go to if, – if they see that, they want to be on winning teams. And if, pe- if your people see you devoted and dedicated to their best interest and the best interest of the team and know that you're doing it in a selfless fashion – they will give their all to also do it in a selfless fashion. Definitely. I feel like mentors are a very good resource to have. How do you find a mentor or develop a good relationship with a mentor? Yeah, I I wish I knew, but I really don't know the answer to that. It, it's kind of funny because I've given several presentations on leadership and mentorship and it's very didactic talking about mentorship, what a mentor is supposed to do and what a mentee, what they're supposed to do and stuff. But the actual interaction, it's almost like a natural development, and it starts with a relationship, a professional relationship, and you identify and want to be like that person or the behaviors of that person, I should say. 
and that person sort of takes you naturally under their wing because they see your attitude and your interest and I've never really asked someone to be my mentor. It just developed into that over working together with them. And then being, many of them were my bosses at one time. And like I said, they took me under their wing. And I, you know, no one wants to mentor anyone if they're arrogant, cocky, not a team player, selfish. You got to make sure you don't fall into that trap and become one of those. You got to show that you have a good attitude. You're a team player. You're willing to sacrifice, go out of the way. You really care about patients. You, you want to be the best doctor you could be. You want to be the best officer you can be. And mentors will start mentoring you naturally. So it starts with you by your approach and your attitude and your openness and willingness to learn. And there's people out there that will then want to teach you, go above and beyond and become a mentor for you. Yeah, that is very good to know. Thank you for that. Did you do any GMO years, or how do you feel about people doing GMO years as opposed to going straight through residency and then working as a physician? Yeah, I did not do any uh, GMO years. I went straight through my family medicine residency three years, from 83 to 86, all at Tripler, and then I went out for my first assignment. And I worked and supervised GMOs in the Army at these different locations, and a few GMOs from other services that I interacted with along the way, and I was sort of like the more senior physician, the board-certified physician. So they would come to me with cases and refer people to me and have discussions with me about, you know, approaches to problem-solving for patients and treatment protocols and diagnostic measure sequences and, you know, whether, whether you know, what kinds of tests to order and those kind of things. So... I have no problem with general medical officers. Uh, we need general medical officers in the military. Each service needs to have a certain number of them. From the physician's standpoint, typically general medical officers are those who are not sure what specialty they want, or they start an internship in a particular specialty that they were selected for and realize that's not for them anymore and they want to change. So they've just finished their PGY one year and become GMOs. It also is for the, the Navy has a lot of a higher percentage of GMOs because of being a shipboard surgeon, shipboard physician. And it doesn't require specialty training in a lot of areas where they would serve. And so they, they have a need, a greater need for GMOs. The other way that people become GMOs, too, is if they didn't compete as well for their residency program and they weren't selected in the residency that they wanted and they know they want to do that specialty, then typically they go do a PGY one year and then become GMOs and then reapply for the residency that they prefer to do. Some people even do GMO year and if they don't get selected into their residency or that opportunity doesn't come up, some serve their obligation and then apply civilian and go civilian residency after they're done with the military. Um, what I would not recommend is someone to become a GMO so they could quickly go out with operational units. If you know what your specialty is, you should go to go right through that specialty the whole way through. You should shoot for that. If you know what it is you want to do for the rest of your life, whether it's military or civilian, 
you should go for it. You should not wait for any other reason. So, that, you know, that's the best advice I could give as far as that goes and being a GMO. Being a GMO, you'll supervise medics, corpsmen, and med techs in the services, and you'll supervise nurse practitioners, and you'll supervise PAs and more junior GMOs, depending on how long you're a GMO for, whether it's, you know, one year, two year, three year. But at some point, you will have to select a residency because you can't be a GMO forever. So if you need time to sort through what you want to do, then by all means, a GMO is a good course for that. Or if you weren't able to compete, become a GMO and try again at another time. If you weren't able, if your grades weren't enough or your board scores weren't enough and you didn't compete as well and they had uh, a lot of applications that year for that particular specialty, you know, you didn't get selected. You know, it's not the end of the world. You, you just got to move forward and move on, be the best doc you can be and make yourself more competitive for the next round. That's good advice because I feel like I've talked to some other people that are interested in operational medicine and they worry that if they don't do it as a GMO, then they won't be able to in their career. But I feel like you're a great example of someone that spent a lot of time doing operational medicine, but didn't have to do that as a GMO. Yes, I did it. I did it as a primary care doc. I'm a primary care docs, family medicine, internal medicine, emergency medicine, pediatrics, for the most part, those, and, and aerospace medicine. For those four or five specialties, getting in operationally early in your career is very easy to do because it's a lot of assignments and troop units in all the services supporting Marines, Army units, Air Force unit and naval units, they need their dedicated primary care for prevention, sick call, all the normal things that happen to every human day in and day out. You know, uh, so the primary care specialties fit that very well. If a specialty care, if you go on to subspecialty care or or uh, surgical, those things, we're going to keep you in the operating room. We're not going to send you out with a unit. Uh, we, we want you seeing patients and doing surgery. We want you to be at your best as a surgeon because the time's going to come when you're going to have to deploy as a surgeon. So you spend a little less time in the field early on in, in your mid-level in your career, except when there's big deployments, and then you're very much needed, and you clinically got to be ready to go because you're safe, saving lives in the operating room and those type of things. And there's a lot of those subspecialties that are needed for that, that type of thing. Right. Could you talk a little bit about how you chose family medicine? And you already touched on this a little bit, but if you feel like family medicine allowed you to do a wide variety of things in the military? Sure, yeah. I, I was certain in my first and second years of medical school that I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. There was, I was 100% sure. And when I started my clinical rotations, third and then into fourth year, I realized that I was more talented working with patients on prevention and primary care and discussing things with them on their health and doing a wide variety of things. I loved every rotation I went on. So every rotation I went on, pediatrics, emergency medicine, family medicine, internal medicine, OBGYN, I loved them all. And that's what convinced me to switch over at the end of my third year as I was applying for my residency for a military match to choose family medicine. And every rotation I was on, I had specialists in, the, in that field telling me, 
oh, you should be an OBGYN doc, you're a natural for it, and oh, you should be a surgeon, you're a natural for it, and oh, you should be this and that. You know, you got to go with your heart. Uh, my best advice to everybody is to choose your specialty. I use two criteria, I tell everybody. Find what you're good at and find what you love doing. If you find what you're good at and you could discover what you really love doing, then medicine becomes like a hobby the rest of your life. You love it. And i got to tell you, I've had no regrets choosing family medicine. That was for me. And I realize it's not for everybody. I don't try to talk everybody to be a family medicine doc. People have their own dreams and perceptions and things they want to be and where they get their fulfillment from. But they should really take a hard look and reflect a little on what am I good at? What are kinds of skills do I have that make me good at this particular specialty? And what do I really love doing? Where do I get the most fulfillment from? Because whether you're in the military or civilian, that's your bread and butter for the rest of your life. So you don't base it on military and you don't base it on anything else. You just base it on you. What what gives you your fulfillment? You're the one that chose to go to medical school. You sacrificed for it. You're the one that needs to choose what residency you want and specialty, and you make the sacrifices to be that specialist. And then you work to be the best you can be in that specialty and serve patients in the best way you can. Yeah, that's great advice. A little earlier you talked about the time that you spent as an 06 or higher. At that level, do you still do clinical medicine, or what are your primary roles at that level? Yeah, so I told you I was got very much into operational medicine in my early and mid-career. I actually had to take my name off the list for consideration for executive-level jobs and command jobs in order to go back and be a department chief and residency training director, which is something I always wanted to do, and to get back into academics and clinical care. I actually had to take a break from the operational side um, and say, you know, enough is enough. I did that. I had a blast. I would never have done anything different again. But you know what? It's time for other people to step in, and it's time for me to get back to my roots in family medicine and run a residency program and uh, department chief. So I went back to Tripler to be the department chief for family medicine, emergency medicine, and optometry. That was the department, the scope of the department, and uh, residency program in family medicine there. So that's what I did, and then I left there in 2000. I retired in 2013. So from 2000 to 2013, the last 13 years of my career, I did not practice medicine. So once I left Tripler as a department chief, I handed my panel over to the next department chief, panel of patients, and I was not into specifically teaching, you know, and supervising and precepting residents anymore. And I went into command and leadership positions, running things, uh, going to meetings, strategic planning, operational planning, budgeting, finance, questing money for the future, project development. Now, it was all in healthcare to support the doctors that were doing clinical care, but I myself was not. Initially, that was very difficult for me. I was a little saddened by not having the time to see patients because it's full-time job doing this other executive stuff. So in 2000, I was a little 
little sad for the first year or two. And then, you know, I, I moved on. I realized the reality, and my job was serving patients in a different role. <laughs> I spent more time working health care plans and TRICARE and leading units and, and building hospitals and operating rooms and working with clinicians on requirements for future hospitals and writing policy and, and leading teams. So it, it was hard, but really the last 13 years of my career, I did not see patients. Yeah, you stole the words right out of my mouth. I was going to ask if that was a hard transition to do because it kind of seems like the trajectory of moving up in rank, you sort of move into more of those leadership administrative roles. But it's good to know that it can be hard at first, but then easy to transition out of that. Yeah, and in the military, all three services, you can spend a full career through colonel being solely clinical, academic, research, with some executive responsibilities in there. But you could see patients all the way through. I mean, we have super subspecialists at our medical centers that are colonels that see patients every day. They're also department chiefs. They're also, uh, they go to morning report. They mentor and precept uh, residents. They're heavily involved with the hospital administration, but they do see patients and get referred patients, and they can spend a full career doing that. So I don't want to mislead anyone that you have to go into purely executive medicine. You do not. You have to do some because you're an officer and a leader in the military, so you got to use those skills as a more senior officer. But you're able to stay pretty much, you could spend a good 50% of your time doing clinical work all the way through your career. That's definitely good to know. It sounds like you had a lot of top leadership roles. Did you do specific things to consciously develop or improve your leadership skills? Well, I, you know, this goes back to those mentors again. They told me, you know, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. What happens in medicine and in the military? A couple of things here. One is to understand that in leader development, there's institutional, experiential, and self-development. And every officer needs to invest some time in each of those. Institutional is going to courses, leadership courses, your officership courses that you go to in all the services, starting with your basic ones that you go to when you're in medical school, and you'll go to career courses, captain's career courses, and whatever, whatever they call intermediate level training, and um, command and general staff college, and war colleges, and senior service college, you know, all of those kinds of things are all leader development things. Those are institutional. There's also institutional, local, and where you go to professional development sessions and you have senior leaders talk about their leadership style. You know, I, I do a whole session where I, I talk about all the mistakes I made and what I learned from those mistakes so I wouldn't make them again when I got to more senior levels. Those types of things. So there's academic settings. It's called institutional learning. you got to go to courses. Experiential learning is on-the-job learning. Just by being in your job and taking on responsibilities, we look, watch, listen to all the leaders around us, and you learn what you would do in a situation, and what you also learn what you wouldn't do in a situation by watching others. And that is invaluable, too, as long as you're open and willing to look, listen, and watch. Uh, 
and, and, and keep a keen eye out and try to develop leadership skills from seeing how others lead. So that's experiential leading and being thrown into those leadership roles. Then there's self-development. That's really reading and taking a hard look at yourself and reflecting and talking to mentors and say, what do I need to improve on? What do I need to get better in? There's always room for improvement. Leaders aren't born. They're all developed. Some people are born with characteristics and skills that may make it easier to develop their leadership skills. But nonetheless, everybody has to develop into a leader. And it takes years and years and years. And the military is a leadership laboratory. So I tell everyone to just remember those three things and you have to invest some time. You're going to have to read some leadership books, talk to mentors, and do some self-improvement things along the way. One of the things I always did for self-improvement, at the end of the day, I used to go back, and this is when I got to my mid-career, more senior career, I always said, how did the day go? How did my relationships go with people? Did I say anything or do anything that I shouldn't have? Or did I forget to say something or forget to do something that I should have done? I always reflected on that at the end of the day. And there's many days where I said, you know, I should have said this this way. I should have done this this way. Tomorrow, I'm going to clarify that. Tomorrow, I'm going to do better. Tomorrow, I'm going to correct whatever I said if I said it wrong or something like that. And that's the way I approached it. It's it's being a little humble and showing a little humility with yourself, which I think makes you a better leader from the leaders I've experienced in my career. Definitely. And what you were just talking about kind of ties into my next question. I feel like while we're in medical school, it's a little hard to feel very connected with the military. But I feel like some things that we can do is try and read books and try and learn more about that leadership. Do you have any other advice for other things that we can do while in medical school to try and be more connected with the military? So, you know, the, the reason why you don't feel connected is because the military's approach to this, once you're in HPSP, is basically to leave you alone to do your work in medical school because you've got to graduate. So the school is in charge, and the military doesn't want to interfere or delay or take up your time with anything because the most important thing is that you graduate. Once you graduate, then the military will dive right in because that's when everyone belongs to the military, not the medical school anymore. And you will pick up very quickly. So my recommendation is focus on your schooling, focus on your grades, on your board scores, the things that are going to make you competitive for residency applications. And while you're there, get some military lectures so you could learn a little more about the culture of the military. Get some people that have spent a career in the military to speak to you about their experiences, just like we're doing now. That all helps with you to understand the military and appreciate it and understand you're going into a quality healthcare organization, going into Army, Navy, and Air Force medicine, defense health medicine. You're going in a very good quality Not only the residencies are quality, but the practice of medicine is very quality. And there's a lot of very high quality, and there's a lot of oversight and standards that you have to meet. And the military system is very good at that. And then at the same time, understand that you're serving in another profession. That's the military profession, an officership. 
you are going to develop into an officer little by little, and it takes years. I mean, you're an officer automatically by your rank, but your officership skills and leadership skills, no one could give you a crash course and all of a sudden, you know, you're good at all that. It, it's years of development, and it's just what I said, institutional, on-the-job, experiential, and self-development. So you want to just start out on a good footing. Know that the military has standards. You've got to meet those standards. They've got ethics, ethical standards. You've got to meet those ethical standards. It's very competitive. You've got to be able to compete as far as residency goes and, you know, uh, in your application and stuff. Those are the things that you should focus on. So if you're doing presentations now and then and you all are getting together, you're going to your officer basic course in the services, and you have some mentors and people that have been in the military at your institution that can share some of their experiences with you about being in the military and being a medical professional, and you could bring in a few people here and there to chat with you about it. That is above what the military would expect because the military is really hands-off. I mean, they focus on execution of the HPSP program, the recruiting part and then the support part to you financially and everything that all that's all being met and then you'll get your magic letter from the graduate medical ed, you know and your rotations and then you'll get your your letter for your uh, application for your residency at the end of your third year and then and then you'll you know things will really start pulling together once you graduate though you'll be in it full speed ahead that's good to know do you have a most memorable deployment throughout your career, or did you have any favorite positions that you held throughout your career in the military? My most memorable deployment was Task Force Ranger Operations in Mogadishu, Somalia in 1993. You all will recall that as the term Black Hawk Down, either the book or the movie that you may have read or seen. I was the senior physician for the Ranger Task Force. In that particular operation, when we went to go arrest international criminals for the United Nations to turn them over for trial, we put this Special Operations Task Force together to go on the offensive to capture these folks. And in doing so, we had a helicopter that got shot down, and uh, we had a mass casualty situation that occurred in the ensuing rescue operation for that helicopter that was shot down. Uh, and that's what the movie and the book is about and everything. And that day, I lost 18 killed in action and 86 wounded, of which 34 required emergency surgery in Mogadishu before flying to Lodstool Regional Medical Center in Germany. And that is my most memorable deployment just from the magnitude of it and the, um, well, the stresses, the stresses that had to do with it and the medical people. And I got to tell you the fulfillment of serving with those heroes. And I got to tell you, many of those heroes were the medical people. We had several orthopedic and general surgeons who did not come out of the operating room for 36 straight hours doing those 34 cases. It was heroic, the medical personnel, everywhere from the, the PJs, pararescue folks in the uh, Air Force and the uh, medics to the PAs to the resuscitation folks, the casualty collection point, the evacuation folks, and then getting them up to the hospital and the staff, 
all coming together with the nursing staff and everybody else. And uh, a lot of lives were saved that day that would not have been saved otherwise. We would have had easily probably around 30 to 40 killed in action if it wasn't for the medical personnel that I had the honor of serving with uh, on that deployment. So that was my most memorable. Yeah, that's an amazing experience to have, and I'm sure to experience that firsthand and just see everyone come together to work as a team. Could you talk a little bit about combat medical care? And, I mean, it's obviously different than the medical care that we provide here, but do you think that combat medical care is something that all of us future physicians should try to experience at some point, or what's your take on that? Well, let me alter your question a little bit and talk about operational medicine. So operational medicine basically means medical support in deployments. And those deployments could be anywhere from non-combat, peacekeeping operations, humanitarian assistance operations, and I've been on all of those, working with foreign countries on helping build their military and train their military, what we call foreign assistance training, terrorists going after terrorists and insurgents and small missions, smaller-sized missions. They're all important and big, but smaller-sized missions, all the way up to full-scale combat and wartime missions where there's an enemy firing at you full-time and you're supporting a team of folks that are firing back at them and stuff, right? And your job is to keep them alive and in the fight. So operational medicine, combat medicine, is something that you will get in your training as you go through. The other term I like to use is austere environments because that's what it is. You have to be so good as a physician that you are able to instantly take your skills to any location in the world in an austere environment. And I say austere environment because you're out of your comfort zone. There's no longer, you know, you're not in a medical center. There's not every specialist available to you right around the corner on the next floor or the next ward. You know, you don't have the volume of medical staff that you have in hospitals around the country. And so you have to be able to be prepared yourself mentally and physically, to go to austere environments to do your job as a physician, whether it's a surgeon or family medicine or emergency medicine or pediatrics or whatever, to be able to do it. And your knowledge and problem-solving ability is the biggest skill that you could ever have because no one could give you a blueprint or a cookie-cutter approach to deployment. Everyone is unique. Everyone is unique and is going to require smart people that could problem solve, that could improvise in order to take care of people and deliver health care because all the resources aren't there with you. And, you know, that's why many of the inventions that happened in medicine and the advancements have been done in the military because of austere environments. The whole idea of doing scopes, you know, the whole, whole idea of infusing blood products, that was all developed in the military. Immunizations to protect people from epidemics and stuff was all developed in the military first before civilian community saw a benefit in it. And I, and I could go on and spend a whole presentation just on uh, developments in the military that transitioned to civilian medicine. But all of those things, those are because of smart physicians decade after decade after decade who are very good, who figured out they didn't have the resources with them 
but they knew the anatomy, the physiology, the pathophysiology, what was going on, and they made it work. They invented their own solutions to things. So that's what we need. To me, operational medicine is problem solving. The ability to think, you gotta be a good doc, and you gotta be a good leader and officer, but at the same time, you have to have the right attitude, be physically fit, because of the austere environment, you, otherwise you become a patient, and you don't want that because you know, you're there to serve everybody else. And then you'll have to problem solve, and you'll have to use your intellectual ability and your experience and your knowledge to recommend to line commanders how to keep their soldiers healthy, how to keep them fit, how to keep them from being wounded, how to, you know, what's set up, where are we accepting risk, where are we not taking risk. No, commanders need to know that stuff before they send their troops into battle. The troops will do anything, anything they get told to do, if they know the medical people are right there with them and right behind them to save their lives. They will do anything because they trust us. And that building that trust is why we have to physically be there with them. You can't do it from afar. Yeah, there's telemedicine, but you can't do everything from afar. There's something about the human spirit, about just physically being there, that is so motivating to these guys. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I showed up at units, uh, units that deployed without a physician, and they had they had medical support, but they didn't have a physician. And when I showed up, it was like, man, we got a doc. <laughs> You know, tell us, just point us in the freaking direction that we're going to go. We know we're in the best hands possible. So that's what I would share with you about operational medicine. And you'll learn the rest, you know, in your career. I can't give you everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes me very excited for the future. <laughs> So this will be the last question, and it's kind of a general question. Do you have any general advice for us while we're in medical school or things that you learned throughout your career that you wish you had known earlier on? Probably you guys are so far ahead of where I was. So, so when I was in medical school at HPSP, I could barely spell HPSP. And not only that, no one... There was the school didn't support anything. It was considered a distraction, and the military, uh, as far as the military goes, and the military, it was hands off. I never saw anybody. I never talked to anybody. No one ever came to speak to us. There was no experience. I didn't even know how to put on a uniform when I was graduating without somebody helping me and pointing to what I needed to do when I graduated, and then I got thrown into this and it was a little overwhelming after graduation. For you, it should be less overwhelming. We're hoping you guys have the confidence that you're in the right place, you're in a good place, and the military will take care of you as long as you have a good attitude and you're willing to learn and be the best you can be. They will support you and develop you further and further, and you will do Great. So that's my best advice for you while you're in medical school. You've got to get good grades. You've got to do as best as you can on the boards. And then the other advice, and this is not everybody will tell you this, but I'm going to tell it to you. Every rotation you go on, you go with the intent that that's the specialty you're going to choose. As far as the people that are there, 
That's all they need to know. You are interested. You have the right attitude. Even if you know you're never going to be, let's just, uh, example, OBGYN doc, and you're on an OBGYN rotation, you, you're there to learn as much as you can, and you need to show the attitude and the inquisitiveness and uh, patient rapport and the staff rapport so those people will want to teach you because you do get an evaluation on each of those and those evaluations are part of your application and then you also have to ask letters of recommendation for your applications for residency which you'll choose from amongst your rotations particularly in the specialty you're going to choose to apply to so you know all rotations you go in there with the attitude that's what you're going to do for a specialty. That's great advice. Thank you. And I just wanted to thank you so much again just for talking with us today and sharing your experiences in the military. It's been great hearing from you and hearing all of those experiences. And for those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything else you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. And thanks for tuning in.